Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Jordan Kotick, and once again, it is my pleasure to be joined by Robert Folsom. Robert is the senior editor at the Socionomics Institute. Robert, as always, thanks for joining me. Hey, Jordan, good to talk to you. As I asked you in the first interview, it might be nice to just reinforce that throughout history, lots of events in any country at any time, but you have some criteria from which you reach the conclusion about whether a time is a security state. So number one, could you review that criteria? And number two, uh, answer the question, are all the criteria evident at every point in time, or is it just a, a handful of consistencies that can vary from security state time to another period of security state time? It is a, a 10 or 11 point pattern that we were able to identify. Um, the, the, the two most conspicuous parts of it are that in all four of the periods we're talking about, uh, there was a, a, a major bear market, especially a, uh, a bear market low, uh, and a major war that the U.S. was involved in. And uh, you see uh, the, the, the ripple effect of the negative social mood happening uh, in, in politics, uh, in, in economics, obviously in the stock market, and even with uh, the most violent activity that uh, a society can be part of, and that's a war. All of those are, are features of the four periods that we looked at. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned war because at the end of the first interview that we did, you mentioned the word weaponized. Now that's a very powerful word. So let's pick up from there. What was weaponized and what did that do during 1966 to 82 that justifies you using such a powerful word? Yeah, I, I, it is a powerful word and I, and I chose it deliberately. It referred to how uh, Richard Nixon used the investigative power of the government and he turned it on his domestic political rivals or people who opposed his policies. And this applied uh, not just to, to politicians who opposed Nixon, uh, although he, he did, you know, the Watergate break-in itself was an attempt to get dirt on uh, the Democratic Party because that's where the, the Watergate Hotel is where the, the Democratic National Headquarters was. But he also uh, wanted to stop the street protests. Uh, at the time, there were uh, you know, tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people who would come to Washington, and Nixon wanted to make that stop. And so he wanted to use the investigative power of the government against American citizens on a scale that it had never happened before. Okay, so that was the turn internally. And, and one of the things that you wrote in the article, which I, I'd like you to clarify, you, you mentioned that negative social mood can drive both authoritarianism and anti-authoritarianism at the same time. Now, that sounds like a contradiction. I know it's not, but how can one mood drive two things that are on the opposite scale of each other? Um, the authoritarianism re refers mostly to, to what government can do uh, to, to organize uh, uh, an authoritarian um, exercise uh, when, when you come to limiting people's uh, speech or, or other protected rights, that happens through the mechanism of, of government, legislators and enforcement uh, of, of the laws. Uh, eventually, uh, sometimes sooner than later, uh, the, the citizens who, are, who, who don't like that uh, authoritarian trend begin to organize themselves and to resist it. And so it's, it's a push-pull effect, but both of them are driven by the, the negative mood of the time. Uh, some people like to tell others what to do, and 
uh, they're, they're more inclined to do that when the trend is negative. Some people don't like to be told what to do and they like it even less during that same negative trend and that's what's, that's what's going on. What were the consequences of that? Well, the, the consequences have uh, much more to do with the rise of the anti-authoritarians. Uh, Nixon had to resign in 1974, which came very close in time uh, to the, the lowest low of the stock market in the 1970s. It was within a month or two of that, of that low. And after that, um, the government, so to speak, turned against itself in some very visible ways. There were uh, a number of uh, uh, congressional committees who looked into the misdeeds of the CIA, uh, the misdeeds of the FBI, and they, they had their budgets cut. Uh, a lot of agents were dismissed, um, and uh, laws were put in place that, that severely limited what kind of operations, especially when it came to domestic spying or domestic surveillance, that the investigative bodies could engage in. Uh, and that was, that was the most conspicuous consequence. Uh, and we're actually going to uh, address some of that in, in part four, because after 9-11, the, uh, the prohibitions that had been put in place after Nixon resigned in the, in the later 1970s, those began to erode. Now, in terms of the players of the period, we've talked quite a bit in the first interview and a little bit already about Nixon, but of course, another prominent person throughout this was, her, was Hoover. So what role did Hoover play and how did social mood affect what eventually Hoover said and did? Uh, Hoover is the most interesting bear market character that, that I've ever studied. And in fact, he's a constant through uh, the first three periods that we looked at. Uh, going all the way back to the First World War when as a 23-year-old, as a uh, his superiors recognized uh, how good the guy was at being an authoritarian uh, and gave him a lot of power and he knew how to use it. And what was also really interesting about Hoover was that he was a very good barometer of mood. He would know uh, when uh, the, the public was more inclined to accept uh, authoritarian steps on, on the part of the FBI and when they were less inclined. Uh, they were very inclined right after World War I and World War II when you had the first and second Red Scare, but he realized that uh, looking at the Vietnam protests and Nixon's desire to, to squelch those protests, that Nixon was pushing back against something that was going to get all of them in trouble if they broke the law, and he did not want to go along with that because he understood what the public's mood was at the time. So is this something he consciously, intentionally tried to ascertain what was the social mood, or is he just somebody who could go with the flow and, and see ahead of things without consciously realizing uh, that it's actually social mood that he's reacting to? Uh, it's probably some of both. Uh, the, the FBI has offices all over the country, and he was constantly in, in touch with and getting, you know, feeling the pulse, so to speak, of the country uh, through the agents that uh, work for, for the, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And he did that. He kept uh, immense, he, he used his agents to keep immense files on tens of thousands of Americans, uh, unbeknownst to most people at the time. But it, it, it wasn't just a sense that he had that helped him read it. He had a, he had a, a very good sense. 
but he also uh, had mechanisms in place to bring him the information uh, about what the sense of the country was, and he took full advantage of that. You said he was a barometer of social mood. I mean, that's a pretty powerful statement. I haven't seen you or your colleagues say that about many individuals. Is that as rare as I think it might be? Um, for an individual to be such a barometer? Well, usually you, you see it more in uh, uh, pop culture performers. You know, Bob, has, Bob Prechter has talked at length about how the Beatles and their music um, were, were very good at anticipating uh, shifts in, in public mood, in, in uh, staying in touch with uh, their audience and, and knowing what kind of records to release and, and both getting ahead of and and reflecting the trends of the time, that's where you tend to see it. Uh, but Hoover was was pretty exceptional because, as I said, um, he began his career in the teens and uh, didn't didn't die until uh, the mid 1970s. In fact, I, I think it was a month or two before the Watergate break-in uh, that he died. So. Uh, you could even say that in, in death, he understood when, when the time had come to get out. It's been a fascinating discussion. Your insights on history are always tremendous. So thank you very much for your time. And I look forward to speaking with you again. Likewise. Thank you, Jordan.